Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello, and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. I'm a writer, a storyteller, and a huge history nerd. And oh gosh, has it been a long time. I'm so excited to be back with you again today, and we have a fantastic story to dive into. But before we do that, let me just give you a little bit of an update of what I've been up to that has been keeping me away from doing this podcast. I've been quite busy with some projects, and I'm really excited to tell you about one of them. I've been working with a wonderful documentary filmmaker called Janine Riggs of Riggs Australia, and together we've been creating a series of documentaries about the historic homesteads in the Esperance area. It's been a long time coming, but the first two documentaries in the series are complete, and you can now view them on YouTube. They're on the Riggs Australia YouTube channel, or you can just search for Esperance Historic Homesteads. And I think if you're a fan of this podcast, you would you will absolutely love these documentaries as well. We go into the history of these different sites, and there's some really great stories that go along with some of these old homesteads. And of course, because it's a video format, you get to have a look at the homesteads as well and see what they look like today. And we've got some amazing historic photos as well that go with them. So when you're finished listening to this podcast, you can pop on over to YouTube and take a look at the Riggs Australia YouTube channel. I'll put a link in the show notes for you as well. And do let us know what you think about them. For today, we've got a long episode, a really great story, although it's quite a tragic one as well. But before we get into it, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the First Nations people of Western Australia, and in particular, the Wajak Noongar people of the Perth area, where a lot of this story is based, and the Wujari Noongar people of the Esperance region, where I'm recording today. The First Nations people have a history and a connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years, and no history of Australia would be complete without acknowledging that. So I'd like to start out by paying my respects to the First Nations people. Just a content note as well before we get into the story that this story does contain mention of suicide. And today we're talking about a man who managed to do the impossible. His feats of engineering transformed Western Australia in ways that we are still seeing the effects of every day. He was not perfect, of course, but this man was incredibly brave and inventive. But ultimately, this story is also a tragedy. So get out your tissue box because today we are talking about Charles Yelverton O'Connor. Charles Yelverton O'Connor was born in Ireland, as you might have guessed from his name, on an estate called Gravel Mount in January 1843. His father's profession was listed as gentleman on his birth certificate. He was a gentleman farmer and he received some of his income from farming Gravel Mount, which he had leased from somebody else, and some from leasing out some other farmland that he owned to small farmers. The Yelverton in Charles's name came from a family connection to the aristocratic Yelverton family, who were distant relatives of the O'Connors. Charles, as we're going to refer to him, was one of five children and his family was fairly well off and they lived quite a comfortable life. But if you're familiar at all with Irish history, you know what is coming next. 
Just a few years after Charles's birth, a new disease began to affect the potato crops that were the staple food of a large majority of the Irish population. The Irish famine, which began in 1845, did not directly affect the O'Connors, being well off, they would have had quite a varied diet that didn't rely just on potatoes, but it affected the tenants who farmed their land. They were terribly impacted by the famine. John O'Connor, who is Charles's father, was obviously a compassionate man because he and several other landowners in the area agreed to stop charging his tenants rent. He also employed as many people in the local district as he could to provide employment and wages to people who were struggling during this time. And he also sold grain and corn to the poor people in the district at discounted prices. John O'Connor also joined a relief committee, which attempted to help the worst impacted by the famine. There were relief committees such as this one set up all over Ireland. But despite the attempts of many people to help, an estimated one million people died as a result of the Great Famine in Ireland. So the O'Connors tried to weather the famine as well as they could. But by 1850, it had started to really impact their family as well. They had given up their lease on Gravel Mount. Charles and one of his younger sisters were sent to live with his Aunt Martha and John O'Connor went to get a job. He became the secretary for the Waterford and Limerick Railway Company, a role which basically meant he was also the manager, treasurer and general administrator. He was earning £300 per year, much less than he would have been earning before the famine, when just the rent from the land that he owned was about £700 a year. But still, it was enough for them to have a reasonably comfortable life and for the O'Connor children to be educated. Charles was then apprenticed to a man called John Challoner Smith, the chief engineer of the railway company where his father worked. When Charles finished his apprenticeship in 1861, he worked for a railway company and worked on several railway lines in Ireland. Charles's father, John, died in June 1863 and his mother, Elizabeth, died two months later. While at one stage they'd been relatively wealthy, John's estate was a very modest £300, which all went to his youngest unmarried daughter, called Letitia. So Charles was now on his own, without family support. And as the railway boom in Ireland was slowing down, his work was also running out. So the following year, 1864, Charles left Ireland on the ship called the Pegasus, bound for New Zealand. The Pegasus took three months to reach its destination and Charles celebrated his 22nd birthday on board. Charles very quickly found work in New Zealand on a survey team. To give you a bit of context, at this stage, New Zealand had only been a British colony for 25 years and there was still a great deal of conflict between the Maori people and the British colonisers going on. The country was also in the grip of a gold rush. And interestingly, gold rushes would go on to define Charles's life, as we'll see. As fortune seekers flooded into the area where gold had been found, of course they needed better roads, particularly in the mountainous region of the South Island, with an incredibly rough, dangerous coastline. And to build roads, you need engineers. So Charles was employed as an assistant engineer to help survey and build a particularly tricky and dangerous mountain pass called Arthur's Pass. 
The area where the road was to be built was mountainous, difficult terrain, and it would have been a tough job for for a new surveyor such as Charles. After his work on this road, Charles went to work on a new railway line that was being built. He had obviously proved himself to be a good worker and a good surveyor because he steadily rose up the ranks, eventually becoming the district engineer for the Westland District on the South Island of New Zealand. During this time, the Government of New Zealand was investing a lot of money into infrastructure works, and so Charles got the opportunity to work on a number of big projects – roads, bridges, harbours, drainage works, and even a water race – an experience which would serve him well later on in life. Interestingly, for later in his life, while he was in New Zealand, Charles worked on several water races, which were wooden aqueducts that kind of piped water from the mountain down to the goldfields, where the water was needed for processing in the mines. These aqueducts were very difficult to build and maintain, but they were very important for the goldfields. In 1873, Charles moved to Christchurch to become the district engineer for the Canterbury district, a bigger, much more prestigious job. And in Christchurch, he met met an architect called William Ness. Ness was a colleague of his and a friend, and significantly, he had three daughters. Ness's oldest daughter, Susan Letitia, was a pretty fashionable young lady. We don't really have any details about their courtship, but then, scandal! Charles and Susan's first child, Aileen, was born on the 4th of March, 1874, the day before their wedding on the 5th of March. Of course, this would have all been rather shocking for the time. Within a couple of days, Charles had a wife and a daughter, an instant family. And we don't really have very many details about this particular time period of his life, and it also does seem a bit odd that they would get married the day after Susan had given birth. So we can really only guess at what happened. It could have been a shotgun wedding, could have been a bit of scandal involved. We're not really sure. But one way or another, he was married and with with a child now. Charles and Susan then moved to Haukatika for a time, and their second child, George, was born in 1875. We can imagine that life would have been quite difficult for Susan. She was only young and she was used to living in Christchurch, which wasn't a huge metropolis at the time, but it was quite an up-and-coming city with a fair bit of a social scene, whereas Haukatika was more like a muddy shanty town at that time with very little in the way of a social life. And her husband frequently had to travel for work, leaving her with two very young children. The couple had another child, Letitia, in 1877, and another towards the end of 1878. And if you're keeping count, that's four children in four and a half years. Just incredible to imagine. Tragically, their fifth child, born in 1879, so that is their fifth child in five years, sadly died in a household accident. By this time, Charles was in a position of quite some authority, but he was not formally qualified as an engineer. So in 1880, he sat an examination and he submitted evidence from his career and was officially admitted as a member of the Institution of Civil Engineers. He continued to work on various projects and continued to rise up through the ranks of engineers in New Zealand. By 1883, he was appointed as the Undersecretary for Public Works. He was, by this time, 40 years old. They moved to Wellington, and Charles's role changed significantly. 
Up until this time, he'd spent quite a lot of time in the field, inspecting and supervising different projects, but this new job involved a lot more, more administration and a lot more desk work. It was quite clear that Charles didn't particularly like this new role, and also New Zealand was heading into a bit of an economic downturn at this time, so despite his hard work, he also faced quite a bit of criticism for things that were quite beyond his control. After seven years in the job, Charles wanted to go back to the field of engineering rather than being in this administrative role. But after a reshuffle, he didn't get the position of chief engineer that he wanted. Instead, he was offered the position of chief marine engineer. He took the job, but he started looking elsewhere for opportunities. By this time, Charles and Susan had seven children, not counting the boy who had died in his infancy. In his year as New Zealand's chief marine engineer, Charles was responsible for harbour works throughout the whole country. He was happy to be back to field work, travelling to sites where work was being undertaken rather than being stuck at his desk. Still, he wasn't really happy with the job and he felt that his experience and expertise weren't being properly recognised. He had also worked incredibly hard during this period of time and he had not had holidays in 20 years since he started work in New Zealand. When John Forrest, Western Australia's first Premier, offered him the job of Engineer-in-Chief of Western Australia, Charles was in the middle of negotiating his salary as Marine Engineer and rather than being offered a raise as he felt befitted somebody in his senior position with a good deal of skills and experience – his salary was being reduced in a cost-cutting measure by £50 to only £750 per year. Still a pretty good salary for those times, but not really what he was wanting. Charles was offered a permanent appointment in Western Australia at £1,200 per year, and he happily accepted. When considering the appointment, Charles asked Forrest if he would be responsible for railways, harbours or roads. Forrest telegraphed the reply, everything. So when Charles Yelverton O'Connor arrived in Western Australia in 1891, the colony had only been self-governing for one year. Before that, of course, there had been a series of governors. The colony had grown very slowly since the British first established a settlement in, in Albany in 1826 And when Charles arrived, although he didn't know it, Western Australia was just about to experience a huge gold rush, which would also trigger a huge population boom. When he arrived, Perth was sparsely populated and most of the roads were just dirt and in quite poor condition, with very few substantial buildings. Charles and three of his children moved to Perth first, including his oldest daughter Aileen, and his wife followed a few months later. Eileen was by this time 17 years old and she was very competent, so she kept house for him and looked after the younger two children. And the day after his arrival in Perth, Charles got to work. The most pressing job on his very long to-do list was building a port at Fremantle. At the time, ships that arrived had to unload at the long jetty at Fremantle. And although this jetty was just over 1,000 metres long, the water was still too shallow for all but the smallest ships to dock there. So any big ships coming in had to unload onto smaller ships which would ferry their goods to the jetty. The captain of the ship Saranac said of Fremantle, 
It is a terrible place. No place to put a vessel. No shelter whatsoever. It is certainly the worst place I or anyone else ever saw. And any man who would come or send a ship a second time is a damned ass. I have been in a good many places in my time, but this is the worst damn hole I ever saw. For the time, that would have been very colourful language. So, building a harbour at Fremantle was an urgent mission. But the situation with the railways, also under Charles's new authority, was also a bit of a mess. At the time, of course, railways were the safest and most efficient form of transport. And with very few roads and huge distances between population centres, Western Australia needed a good railway system. When Charles arrived, there were 188 miles of government railway lines and a couple of private lines as well, notably the line that linked Beverley with Albany. That section was privately owned. And on that section of train line, the train from Albany left at 6pm and arrived in Perth at 1.50pm the following day. So it took about 20 hours to get from Albany to Perth by train. The government train line was also poorly managed and it operated at a loss. Charles very quickly got to work upgrading sections of the existing railway line and getting new sections built, including a line to Southern Cross, a line down into the southwest, and he also organised for the government to purchase that section of private line that ran down to Albany. And then to the harbour. At the time, a consultant engineer had suggested building the new Fremantle Harbour at a place called Owen Anchorage, about four miles, that's about seven kilometres, south of Fremantle, in a particularly treacherous bit of coastline. And if you know that area of the coastline, you'll know that there are a lot of reefs off the shore and the prevailing winds are very strong and come inshore in that area, and so there's not a lot of shelter. Charles insisted that a better place for the harbour would be in the mouth of the Swan River. This would require moving the rocks that blocked the mouth of the river and dredging it for sand. It would cost more to do so and it would take longer, but it would be a much more suitable long-term situation. There was a lot of very boring arguing that went on in the Parliament, in the Western Australian Parliament, which was undoubtedly very stressful for Charles, but in the end the harbour was built in the location that he had chosen. I should also add in here that the rock bar at the mouth of the river was very significant to the Noongar people of the area and they used to gather there and catch fish and socialise. The destruction of this rock bar and the harbour being built in that particular location was a big loss for the Noongar people and there are some reports that some Noongar people, angry about the loss of this sacred site, sang Charles and to sing somebody is effectively like putting a curse on them. Is there any truth to that? Well, of course, you be the judge to that, but given the events that unfolded later on in his life, some people do believe that he was sung and that that had a big effect on his future life. Either way, while the building of the harbour brought about a lot of progress for Fremantle, sadly it was a great loss for the Noongar people who used the site. At the time that Charles arrived in Australia, there was a small gold rush going on already in the Murchison and at Yilgarn, around the town of Southern Cross that was established in that area. And then, in 1892, gold was discovered in the place that would become Coolgardie. Bailey, one of the men who discovered the gold, bought his first find, which was over 550 ounces of gold, 
valued at around £2,000 at that time, into the bank at Southern Cross. And as you can imagine, this sparked off an incredible amount of gold fever. I'm well and truly obsessed with the gold rush time period. It so dramatically changed Western Australia and it changed so many people's lives as well. Many men died in the pursuit of gold, but many were also made rich beyond their dreams. But anyway, we'll do an episode on the gold rush at some stage. But the significance is that Western Australia began to change dramatically. There was huge population growth and a huge demand for roads, railways and more than anything, water in the goldfields. By 1894, a water train was being sent to Southern Cross from Perth daily and the newspapers were full of reports of water shortages every day in the goldfields. By this time in Western Australia, Charles faced a lot of public criticism. This is quite understandable, I guess. Here is this outsider brought in from New Zealand, and all of a sudden he's making huge decisions that impact the entire colony. He received criticism for a lot of the decisions that he made, which in hindsight were very good decisions, such as the decision to locate the Fremantle Harbour where it is today. He also chose to relocate the railway workshops from Fremantle to Midland, which earned him a lot of criticism as well. John Forrest's brother, Alexander Forrest, then the Mayor of Perth, said of him, an able officer, but an expensive official, and if we went on as we were going, in 10 years the colony could then be handed over to that gentleman. It would be far better for the government to get rid of the engineer-in-chief rather than ruin half of Fremantle. As well as this criticism, Charles was also very badly impacted by an accident that took place when the Fremantle Harbour was being built, in which a man called John Irvin, who was Charles's friend and he was also the officer in charge of the whole project, was killed while dynamiting rocks for the harbour. It seems that some of the criticism came because Charles expected a lot from the people that he worked with and he could be quite harsh, especially with contractors. But it's also significant to note that he made a real effort to look after the workers on his different projects, calling for better conditions for railway workers in particular. And you can see here the echoes of his father's example back when his father was looking after the farmers who were leasing the land that he owned back in Ireland. So all of that brings us to Charles's greatest project and the one that he is most known for. You probably already know about it, but let me tell you the details. By 1895, Charles was exploring the possibility of building a pipeline to pipe water to the goldfields. It was, it would seem, not his idea to begin with, but he threw his energy into the idea and began investigating it in earnest. So this plan would include a water reservoir near Perth and a huge pipeline over 500 kilometres long to Coolgardie. Interestingly, by this time, Kulgadi was the third largest town in the whole of Western Australia. It's certainly not that these days. Charles's plan was incredibly thorough and he collected data and looked at every single detail of the project. Then he ran the plan past a panel of experts, British engineers, who spoke highly of it. They said it would be the most ambitious pipeline of its kind. And then, finally, along with the Premier John Forrest... Charles presented the plan to Parliament. There was the usual debate and squabbles about the plan, but in the end, it was accepted, 
and Forrest started to work on raising the £2.8 million that the project would need, an incredible sum of money in those times, which just goes to show how important the water was for the Goldfields region. So then, in 1897, the construction of the pipeline began. Water in the pipeline would have to travel very slightly uphill. Mundaring, where the reservoir is located, is located 340 feet above sea level, but Kugadi is 1,400 feet above sea level, so there's a gradual incline all the way between Mundaring and Kugadi, even though it might seem the opposite because Mundaring's located in the hills. So eight pumping stations would have to be built along the way to pump the water along the pipe. Almost immediately, a huge barrage of criticism was levelled at the scheme. And of course, it was seen as being Charles's project, so most of the criticism was aimed at him. A lot of the criticism was because of the huge cost of the project, but many people believed wrongly, I might add, that there was plenty of water under the ground in the goldfields that could be accessed for a much lower cost. The Kulgadi miner said that by the time the water reached the goldfields, it would be no longer required. The Daily News called the project a scheme of madness, and the Northern Advertiser called it O'Connor's quasi-amateur scheme. The Sunday Times criticised the scheme heavily. Notably, both the West Australian and the Kalgoorlie miner both supported the project. In 1897, Charles took a trip to England. A work trip, of course. He did seem to be somewhat of a workaholic. And while he was there, he was presented with a significant award, the Companion of the Order of St Michael and St George, for his work on the Fremantle Harbour, which was by then nearly finished. He had not been back to that part of the world since he left for New Zealand as a 21-year-old, and he was now 54. He spent most of his time in London, working on the pipeline scheme. He was talking to his panel of engineers, visiting existing water schemes, inspecting pumping machinery. This was definitely a man who did not know how to have a holiday. While he was there, though, he did fit in a visit to his homeland, Ireland, where he visited his remaining relatives, including his sister. While Charles was away, a significant thing happened back in Western Australia. The first ship, a ship called the Sultan, docked at the newly completed Fremantle Harbour. There was a huge ceremony to mark the occasion, and John Forrest, in his speech, said... The chief credit for the scheme was due to the engineer-in-chief, that is, Charles. Back in Australia, Charles told the newspapers that the expert engineers from Britain had given the project a ringing endorsement. The money had been raised, and so it was full steam ahead with building the pipeline. There were delays, of course. A delay in building the dam led the Sunday Times to state acerbically that the progress being made at Mundaring seems to indicate that the first half pint of water will reach the goldfields in the year 2000. And there were tragedies as well. The ship, the Carlisle Castle, sank in 1899 off the coast of Fremantle while bringing a shipment that was needed for the construction of the pipeline and the entire crew was lost. And the newspapers carried on their criticism. The Sunday Times published an opinion of Charles. They said, All that O'Connor knows about engineering could, without crowding, be stated in a very small book. And it also published an article called The Coming Destruction. 
very dramatic, stating that Perth was in danger of being flooded if the dam burst due to the use of rotten cement. And look, I know this is long already, but I can't resist throwing in this little detail. The editor and part owner of the Sunday Times at the time was a man called F.C. Vosper. He was a very fiery, crusading journalist who supported such radical things such as votes for women, a minimum wage, prison reform and the rights of workers. But as we can clearly see here, he also lashed out at other things such as John Forrest and O'Connor's pipeline scheme. Vospa had an interesting past which included a three-month sentence for inciting a riot in Victoria. And despite his attacks on Charles, he seemed like he was a very interesting man who genuinely wanted to do some good, if he was quite misguided at times. Sadly, Vospa died of neglected appendicitis in January 1901, and Charles sent a wreath to be laid on the coffin at his funeral. This did not stop the attacks on the pipeline scheme or on Charles in the Sunday Times, and in fact, some of the worst attacks were written after Vosper's death. And of course, we can't neglect to mention that around this time, Western Australia voted to join the Federation of Australian States in 1900, and in 1901, the Commonwealth of Australia came into being. This also meant another big change. Sir John Forrest, who had been Charles's friend, ally and supporter from the start, resigned from his position in order to go into federal parliament. And, sadly, 1902 led to even more attacks on Charles. The parliament, now without John Forrest, criticised Charles for various decisions that were made on the project, and the Sunday Times continued its attacks. In what was probably the worst article... The paper published a column entitled Corruption by Contract, which said, It is open rumour everywhere that this shire engineer from New Zealand has absolutely flourished on palm grease since the first day when the harbour works and the Kulgadi water scheme were agreed upon. If he is now not immensely rich, there is some mystery somewhere. This man has exhibited such gross blundering or something worse in his management of great public works that it is no exaggeration to say that he has robbed the taxpayer of many millions of money. This crocodile imposter has been backed up in all his reckless extravagant juggling with public funds by the kindred-souled editor of the West Australian. Very flowery language, but at the same time you can imagine how much that would have affected Charles to have reports like this being published in the Sunday Times. Charles was, by this time, overworked, as you can imagine, and probably facing exhaustion. He was noticeably depressed and he was suffering from insomnia. His relationship with his family had always been strong, but even his daughters had noticed that he was unusually depressed. And his secretary at the time also noticed that he was upset and worried by the attacks from the parliament on the project. Around this time, there was a test of the pipeline where the water was pumped over six miles from the Mundaring Dam over some of the most difficult terrain on the whole project. There was a bit of leakage from the pipes, from one area in particular, which was easily fixed, but on the whole, the test was successful, and it showed that everything was going forward just as it had been planned. Still, Charles was noticeably worried and depressed. 
Two days later, on the 10th of March, 1902, Charles went for an early morning ride. He loved horses and riding was one of his favourite pastimes, something he often did to rest and relax. On his early morning rides, he was often accompanied by his daughter, Bridget. But on this particular day, she was unwell, so she did not go along for the ride. And so, on that morning, Charles Yelverton O'Connor rode to South Beach at Fremantle, which was deserted at that time of morning. He dismounted, walked into the water, carrying a revolver, and he shot himself. He died there in the water, with no witnesses around except for his horse. He had left a note on his desk, apparently a suicide note, that read in part, I feel that my brain is suffering, and I am in great fear of what effect all this worry may have upon me. I have lost control of my thoughts. The Kulgadi scheme is all right, and I could finish it if I got a chance, and protection from misrepresentation, but there is no hope for that now, and it is better that it should be given to some entirely new man to do, who will be untrammeled by prior responsibility." This was a tragic end to the life of a man who spent his considerable energy working for the public good. Of course, Charles's death was met with an outpouring of grief. John Forrest wrote, I mourn with the people of Western Australia the loss of one who has left behind a high and honourable record of splendid public service, and I mourn the loss also of a dear and valued friend. The acting premier of the time said that Charles's two great works will ever form monuments to the late Mr O'Connor's great and undoubted engineering ability. New Zealand's Prime Minister, Richard Seddon, expressed deep regret at the loss of his old friend and sympathised with the irreparable loss to your colony. His funeral was attended by thousands and there were so many wreaths that they covered the... His funeral was attended by thousands and there were so many wreaths that they covered the hearse and completely filled a second carriage. The Sunday Times, rather than express any kind of remorse at any part they might have played in Charles's death, stated, All our criticisms of the deceased gentleman have been sans malice and purely devoted to the public welfare. The Sunday Times had insinuated that Charles had been corrupt and had been taking money from the public purse, but on his death he was actually found to be relatively poor. He didn't own any property, and he and his family lived in a rented house. And aside from some furniture and some personal effects, a couple of horses and a cow which apparently seldom gave any milk, he didn't own anything at all. The government... Noting that he'd spent 11 years working incredibly hard in Western Australia and hadn't in that time taken any personal leave, gave his widow, Susan, an annuity of £250 per year. In January of 1903, just 10 months after Charles's death, the Goldfields Pipeline Scheme was opened. There was a huge ceremony in Kulgadi, complete with many dignitaries, a procession, bands, camels, pipers, flags and a lavish luncheon. Sir John Forrest officially opened the pipeline. Then he turned on one of the valves and a stream of water spurted into the air from a fountain, to great applause. In Forrest's speech, he expressed sadness that the engineer of the project had not lived to receive the honour so justly due to him. And, as you may know, 
The Goldfields Pipeline is still operating today, more than 100 years later, and it is still supplying water to over 100,000 people every year. It was truly an incredible feat of engineering. The Fremantle Harbour is, of course, still operational as well, and it remains Western Australia's busiest port. Charles was survived by his wife and his seven children, two of whom became engineers themselves. And he is, of course, memorialised all throughout Western Australia. There's a statue of him at the Fremantle Port and another one at the beach where he died, which has now been named after him. There's an electorate named after him, a TAFE, a school and numerous streets. He is widely regarded as a brave and hardworking man who left a rich legacy. As he was remembered by one of his friends from New Zealand, he has undoubtedly been one of the most remarkable and useful pioneer settlers. He combined gentleness and amiability with force and vigour of character and intellectual activity to an extraordinary degree. And so that's it. That's the story of C.Y. O'Connor. Thank you so much for joining me for this story today. It is really an interesting story about a man who was brave, hardworking, definitely to a fault, and did a lot of good for Western Australia in the face of a lot of criticism. A lot of detail for this story comes from the very good book, C.Y. O'Connor, His Life and Legacy, by A.G. Evans, which I certainly recommend if you would like any more of the story. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so on Instagram. That's Wild WA Stories Podcast. I'll also be putting some photos on Instagram if you'd like some pictures to go with your story. Charles O'Connor was quite an interesting looking man, very stately and he was very tall as well, always wore very distinctive hats. So if you'd like some pictures of that or of the pipeline scheme or some other bits and pieces, then I'll be putting some photos on Instagram. Um, and you can find find me there. You can also find my website at www.wildwapodcast.com and I'll be back with you soon for more wild stories from Western Australia's past. <laughs>